The Dark Knight Returns is arguably the most important Batman story ever published outside of the first one. And it's been talked about, it's been analyzed, it's been critiqued, it's been animated, it's been adapted, it's everywhere. And now, the Comics Pals will be breaking it down. Does it stand the test of time? Spoiler alert. I mean, yeah, of, of course. And how do we feel about it all these years later? We've got a full house, of course. We've got Kale. I am the hot dog. Marco. This would be a good death. Tyler. Hello. And I'm Sean. And you're here too. So welcome. Welcome to the Dark Knight Returns book club, Comics Pal style. Thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate you. And I want to start I want to start here because this is such a this is such a groundbreaking book, right? Uh it's four issues released between February and June of 1986. Right? And what's so groundbreaking about that right away is that this book was actually this was this was a new sort of style, a premier prestige book. Uh, it was 46, the way it was described is 46 to 70 some odd pages, right? That's what, double, triple the size of a normal comic book. And it allowed them to pace the book how they wanted without having to be as concerned with ad breaks or, you know, issue over issue stuff. If this had been published in regular size, it probably would have been maybe 12 issues, um, somewhere in that realm. Oh, yeah. yeah. So it started off groundbreaking just on that level. Uh, of course, it's written and drawn by Frank Miller with inks by Klaus Janssen, letters by John Costanza, colors by Lynn Varley, who is actually Miller's wife, uh, was Miller's wife for 19 years. Whoa. Yeah. Um, and it's worth pointing out, edited by Dick Giordano and Denny O'Neill all of whom were very, very uh, important to this book. Uh, Klaus Jansen and Frank Miller notably worked on Daredevil together. Um, they had a wonderful time, so it was a no-brainer to work on this. Um, now, before we get into the story of how this book came to be, I want to quickly go over a couple of things. First of all is... We promised a giveaway, a Dark Knight Returns giveaway. I think we've all got our copies. I know I've got mine here in hand. Yes, there it is. Tyler and I have the same one. And uh, Kale and Marco are holding up iPads. Wild. We have the same one. That's crazy. Because <laughs> I'm using his account, so it's the same <laughs> That's one. That's right. <laughs> What's so funny was sometimes like like reading a day, like a day or two ago and being like, I wasn't on this page. Hold on a second. Yeah. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I might as well be, I might as well be walking into his house and picking up his issue. <laughs> That's right. So all you have to do to enter into this giveaway is leave us a comment or a question about the book throughout the course of this live stream, and uh, we will enter you into a randomizer. And at the end of the show, we'll reveal the winner. And then after that, you have to message me on our Discord server, which means you have to join our Discord server as the winner. And uh, we'll get that shipped out to you. So 
Very simple. I'll reiterate that a little bit later for anybody who joins after the fact. Also, of course, if you enjoy the book clubs, know that the book chosen is chosen by the listeners. So if you like the books that are being selected, patrons get to choose those. So if you want to be a part of that process, head on over to patreon.com slash the comics pals and join today. I'll make another announcement about the book club at the end of this. So stay tuned for that. Everything else at the Comics Pals, you know the drill. Let's keep it going. So as to how this book came to be, and really how the relationship between Frank Miller and DC came to be, we have to go all the way back to the early 80s, early to mid 80s, when hot off Daredevil, Frank Miller meets with Jeanette Kahn, and she asks him, what can we do? What's your dream situation in comics? And he said, freedom and more money. <laughs> more money in the sense of like partaking more in the success of the book. You know, like if, if the book does well, get paid more for that type of thing, which yeah, we would okay. now know as like back end or whatever you might Royalties, call it. Royalties. Yeah. Royalties. Yeah, exactly. Sure. Um, And he got exactly what he wanted. She gave him everything he wanted we we've talked a lot about Jeanette Khan and her role in getting creators paid more and introducing royalties to comics in a legitimate way and that's why we got the wave of brilliant creators that includes Miller and includes Alan Moore and Grant Morrison at DC so Jeanette Khan deserves a lot of credit for that we talked a lot more about that in our history of the DC implosion uh that aside we got Ronin that was the first thing that came out of this new relationship and we saw that come out between july of 83 and august of 84 then dc approached miller about batman and asked him what would you do what would you do with batman because dc was losing the race marvel had off the heels of miller and others really revitalized themselves and dc just was still doing the same old stuff so in trying to figure out what miller would do for Batman, which he was contractually obligated to do, um, he looked out his window. Living in New York, a young man, he sees chaos. It's the 80s, right? He figures out that Batman should be there. That's the way to make Batman a relevant character. Think about that. Mm -hmm. Think about mm -hmm. that. If you're If you're reading comics in the 80s, Batman's cool. You like him and all that, right? You got Denny O'Neill. You got a lot of great creators. But if you're not reading comics, what do you think about when you think about Batman if you're alive in the 80s? Probably a TV show? Absolutely. Mm. The 66 mm -hmm. show. Yeah, Super Friends, up. maybe. Yeah. Absolutely. So who is Batman to you? Adam West, this mm. fun-loving, thrill-seeking guy with his, you know, cool, uh, uh, colorful partner kid. Damn. Robin, right. That's Batman to you. So Frank Miller says, no, I'm going to make Batman relevant to the world as it is right now. And so he takes New York and makes that Gotham, which is not far from what Gotham was always anyway in the comics. Okay. And he does it with Klaus Jansen, who is his partner from Daredevil, where they had the rule about New York that it would feel like a third character. Like, Protagonist, antagonist, you know, land, environment, 
type of thing. And they did the exact same thing here. To great effect. Um, I think the the city, the grime, the the crime itself is all palpable. And the way that he uses that to build tension, um, even in the first couple of pages, like heat, heat as a, as a metaphor in this book is, is incredible. Yeah, even the weather. Yeah, exactly. Like, like all of that is meant to be like, um, now that you say that in context, I can imagine like a muggy summer day, you know, I hate that. And just the feeling of stuff sticking on you and you feeling dirty and just kind of like, I need to be cleansed of something. Think, think of the smell from as New Yorkers, <laughs> that smell of that hot, wet city, yeah. you know? Yeah. And you know what's fun? Yeah, go ahead. Sorry, just on the subject of the weather, I think it's interesting that this was published February to June and it almost does a 180 on the oh yeah on the weather as blazing hot as this is coming out in the book in february but by june it's winter uh on the point though of the of the weather um new yorkers know real new yorkers know that it it gets dangerous it when it's hot mm-hmm. it gets the more hot it the hotter it is the more dangerous it is and this book, this is the hottest it's been. This is there. It's hot. It's hell. That's how hot it is. Mm. Um. So especially someone who was living in New York in the eighties, he would certainly know that. And I feel like that's why the book starts that way. One of the reasons. For sure. Yeah. The whole idea of New York being a, a a den of crime, like street crime, existed throughout media at the time too. I mean, Warriors was seventy nine. Yeah. Right. So that's almost a decade prior and it didn't change much until i guess until like the the changing happens going forward in terms of the timeline here from like late 80s to the 90s um but yeah yeah the 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 cliche of new york city being its own character gotham kind of plays with it here yeah exactly plays with it Mm. and you know i want to give credit where credit is due to the fact that um klaus has said that for him and Miller, or at least for him, and he believes Miller, they were inspired by Will Eisner and the way that Will Eisner yeah. used New York in the spirit. The spirit, so. and also, I believe, Marco, what's the other one? Contract with God? Contract with God. Yes, yep. contract yep. with God. Yeah. Wow, wait, that makes a lot of sense. Even, whoa, even in, in like the inking itself, thin lines, that's all Klaus Johnson does in this. Is is create thin lines the same way an Aja would because it's caricatures. It's almost like um, he's uh, they're they're drawing um, very very small presences, small panels, um, but they're filling in the gaps uh, again, cartoonish. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Okay. Wow. Yeah, and I think you know all of this, all of these environmental factors, the factors of you know the worldview that someone like Frank Miller had at the time where, you know, he's looking at the country and he's, he's a young disillusioned person, everybody pretty much, I guess not, not literally everybody, but most people go through a period of disillusionment when they're younger about the state of the world, about their country, about their belief systems. And Frank Miller was having that to a very high degree. Uh, He had negative feelings about the country. You can tell that throughout the entire book. It's very obvious. Mm. He had a lot of feelings about crime and the state of the world, but the world was outside his window. Mm. You know, literally, exactly. 
And so this quote that I'm about to read and all of that in context, I think, explains Frank Miller's perspective on Batman. Quote, that's what we need, a gigantic father figure to straighten this all out. One of the things I love most about Frank Miller, and especially his Batman stuff, is that it is him. Like, he bleeds onto his his scripts when he writes. Um, Dark Knight Strikes Again is a very post-9-11 reaction. Um, and you can tell this book is him trying to cope with the world through Batman. Um, and I just think it's impressive. Uh, like, whether or not you can... You know, the craft is great. Everything, you know, the art's great. But just the emotion that comes out of here, a lot of rage, and it's not really good emotion sometimes. <laughs> um, it's, it's, I don't know if commendable is the word, but it's highly readable and enjoyable. That, that emotion, rage, um, I think, I think maybe a jadedness uh, is very present in, in, mm-hmm. in a lot of the stuff that he puts out. Um, you know, he's, he's pessimistic about the world and, and, and how people fit into it a lot of the time. Um, and I think it, it, it's interesting because, you know, uh, superheroics are the, can be the opposite of that. Uh, in, in this case, though, uh, you know, Bruce beats himself up a lot. You know, he's, he's critical of himself in the same way that he's critical of the expectations of the world around him. Um, and how people should be, how, how people should be living their lives according to him. And, um, to your point, Tyler, like that would probably be the expectation of somebody at that time walking around the city is there should be a better way. And I think he positions Batman as the way Hmm. not in a, and I don't even know that it's like Batman is definitively right. Or yeah. that his methods are correct. It's just Batman is someone who is willing to do whatever is necessary to solve the problems that he sees in the world. And he has a very clear and straightforward way of doing that. He cuts yeah. through all the bullshit, everything else that's going on, all the talking heads. He's a man of action. And I think Miller is clearly juxtaposing action versus inaction. Talky BS versus actual getting out there and handling business. Well, he even goes as far as to fight God. You know, you've got you've got Superman, you know, who's above it all. Um, you know, and, and it's a classic dichotomy, but you know, Superman is, you know, the the first time we see Clark Kent, you know, he's he's in this rippling pose, you know, where he's the perfect specimen, you know, and you know, to a degree, like you can make the argument that it's very uh, Christ-like to, you know, in in the way that, you know, he uh, he's just this being that's above it all. And Batman says, no, I'm going to come take care of it. And if you have a problem, you come down and do something about it. Right. Exactly. And, and but he's also pessimistic about that because Superman's a lackey, 
realistically like he's he's under the foot god is is in control is under being is under control by the by the presidency by america like there's that intertwining of the the uh, religious and the state and and that's not separable it seems and, and he's he it's not direct but obviously you know the the fact that he does the president's bidding that sort of aligns I think it's I think it's uh it's incredibly direct. I mean, God, the way that uh there's a there's a sequence where you see Superman's or rather you see the American flag, right? Mm. And then you see Superman's chest has the the symbol yeah. and they they're they you don't know where one ends and one begins mm. type thing. And I thought that that was a, I mean that's an incredible page i wish i could find it it's an incredible page but it also underscores what frank is trying to use superman as which mm -hmm. is a stand-in for not even necessarily like you like kale said god you could say god i think you could also say america or but i think it's a general stand-in for the ultimate force like the <laughs> ultimate authority mm -hmm. and we see Batman rail hard against authority in this book. And I don't even know, and there, I'm sure a, a, a scholar will, will tell me, but I don't even know how much of that idea is ever present in all of Batman stories, that, that hyper-vigilant anti-authority stance that we see so clearly here, and then, of course, in year one. But I don't mm -hmm. know how prevalent it was before that. I think in terms of like that side of things, you also got to remember this is a Cold War era book, both in when it was created and published, but also in the setting. It's still, it's 1986 in the book as well. Yeah. So um, a lot of those, that uneasiness permeates this book in terms of uneasiness on, on the whole, is there a war about to happen sort of sense, um, but also on the kind of the jadedness to the American cause as well. Well, the, the American cause, uh, I took it as imperialism. The Corto Maltese was exactly that. It, it is it is the yeah. force that is being that he comes down on to exact its righteous fury. You know, it's manifest destiny. You can you to that to that degree, um, Kale. Like, uh, it, it it feels like it has the right to impose on those things. And Batman being that anti-authoritarian, um, coming to head with that ultimate force of, well, hey son, I need you to go do this thing for your country. And Miller would be would have grown up during the Vietnam War, so sure, yeah. this would have yep. clearly influenced him. On the subject of Batman as a uh, you know a vigilante, which is not his word, but you know, here's the quote: "Batman is anti-establishment. He's not an obedient citizen. His idea of dealing with crime and corruption was to attack it with full force and ignore the law." He has absolutely disrespect, full disrespect for any and all authority that doesn't align with his exact view of the way things should be. And he's that's, myopic. Yeah, that's how we see Batman. And I said before, and I'll say it again, it's not even about right or wrong. This is about Batman's point of view. That's it. And yeah. so from his point of view, he is right. And Gordon is right because Gordon is willing to do what's necessary. Or stay out of the way. 
We see that several times mm-hmm. where Gordon's not going to necessarily be the one to get it done, but he won't stop Batman from getting it done. And when the police department decides that they want to try, Batman gives them every single thing he has and he puts them in their place. And to, but to that point, he also, Gordon specifically, he, he knows how to step away. Uh, he, he has that whole moment with Yindel in the, before she becomes the, not, not his going away speech, but like right before he, he just tells this kind of like almost like a parable mm-hmm. um, on, on, on like, you know, ultimately the lesson, the lesson learned is you can only do so much as the individual. And if you're trying to have what is this ultimate justice or fairness in the world, you have to play unfair and he can play in that space. And while that is inherently unfair, it is leading to just outcomes. Um, yeah, so let's, let's talk more about, let's talk more about Batman. So this is a, this is a 55 year old version of Batman who is 10 years retired after the death, the death of Jason Todd, which it's funny because he died. He hadn't died in the comics yet. So this predates that. And I was wondering if readers were influenced by this at all to vote for Todd's death when that vote ultimately came up two years later. Oh, interesting. Imagine like, yo, this book's firing, make him dead, make it happen. Yeah. Let's make it come to fruition. Yeah. 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 And Kelly brought up the crowbar comes into play here too, which is like, all right, interesting. Which wasn't a thing yet. Yeah. 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 It felt like it leaned on it, but that's because I have 40 years of, you know, knowledge after the fact. Mm -hmm. Um, But I, I feel, you know, it mentions that, jason died but he he thinks more about dick than he mm, he thinks he 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 thinks more (laughs) about the first robin than he does the second (laughs) you know in terms of like jason dying is the reason he retired but like after like after he, he sort of establishes that and he's like you know, okay, Jason was a good soldier and I have the memorial here. He's all about Dick. I mean, Robin. Right. So, uh, so I guess my, my point being there, I wonder how, I, I do wonder how much um, that would have influenced the audiences because to me, it Jason wasn't as present hmm. oh i see what you mean well like he, but, but his exclusion as a character is his character in this book like it it the, the effect being it it destroyed him enough to not to, to take the cowl off but that's but what i'm saying is it that's the case in the beginning but when he comes back, he's thinking about the first Robin. Oh, oh, well, but I mean, I assume because of Carrie. I have, I have a thought on that. Yeah. I think, I think what happens is that when Jason dies, Bruce Wayne takes control of the vehicle, as it were. Yeah. And he says, "Okay, this went too far. We're closing up shop." This is done. And when the book starts 
and he is Bruce is racing, right? Which I think is a crazy, phenomenal start to a comic book. But when the when that that sequence that I'm holding up right here, that is Bruce Wayne losing control of the vehicle. That is him mm. pushing it as far as he could push it. When when I say vehicle, I mean his own body. It's a it's a, I think it's a stand-in. He's pushing it as far as he can push it without taking things too far. He's older. He's slower. He's not as in control. If he lets Batman out, what happens? He's got to stay in control. He can't go all the way. This car is going to explode if he goes all the way. It's a great opening too. That's like literally page one, right, Sean? Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. yeah. it really establishes like this Batman's driving angry right away, you know, uh, and it's not your daddy's Batman anymore from the get. I, I, I've always liked the way that it starts thematically, but I've always felt that, and and this is uh, a critique across the book, um, is I've always felt that the paneling is so tight. And sometimes you lose um, fidelity, you lose clarity uh, in in some of the the way that it's broken out. I structured, I think, and, and makes sense for this for the point of the story. But um, when it comes down to like functionally, I think I think it gets cramped. Mm. See, I I disagree actually. Um, mm. I think you know that that tight paneling is used a lot during the uh, the news segments. Which uh, I guess Todd McFarlane decided to use in Spawn going forward, um, <laughs> but the ability to tell that much detail in quick little snippets, real quick, I think adds speed and momentum to the page rather than constricting it. Uh, it's almost like a like a, a Kale a Zoe trope, almost in a way. Um, like constantly seeing these little snippets so fast that it's giving right. motion to it. Um, they use that but a couple I, times, yeah. I'd also argue the claustrophobia is the point. Sure. Yeah. yeah good point. Mm, mm, I definitely, mm, okay. I definitely think it's the point, and I don't always think that it works. I think that there are times when it was just too much, mm-hmm. um, where it's just like there's multiple speakers, there's multiple perspectives, there's not necessarily a shift in color between narration boxes to know who's speaking at a given time. And I think all of those things are deliberate choices. I'm not suggesting that Miller made any mistakes in terms of what he wanted us to, to get out of it or rather what he tried to get across. Um, Like, I think that the claustrophobia is very deliberate. I think breaking the rules and conventions of traditional comics and making it so you don't always know who exactly is speaking. I think all of those are choices that he was making, but I feel like for me, uh, sometimes it was just too much. It it gives the right illusion to the reader, but it has the same effect on the audience as it does the characters. Like it's so much like all the time that you you get swept away. Uh because it's so much all the time and you never really get a break from it. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, so 
this is a version of Bruce Wayne. And I don't know, again, how much of this stuff is 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 coming from Frank or was already present in the DNA of the character. And I think that's what's so fascinating about doing what we're doing. Uh, a, a guest on our show before, I think it was um, Culver, Dennis Culver, I believe, said it's like being an, uh, an archaeologist. Yeah, it was yeah, that. yeah. Yep. And it very much feels like that because we're looking at this now. It's historic, right? And we are, we have we know all about this. We don't necessarily know all the context of what came before this, which fascinates me. But that being said, um, you know, we don't know how much of Bruce's psychology had been examined before this. So the idea in my mind here with this version of Bruce is that he needs to be back. He has to be yeah. Batman. But it's not because, in my mind, it's not because he's crazy. Or I don't think Frank is making any kind of like mental health statement with Batman or Two-Face or Joker. I actually think he's making fun of the idea that someone would make a mental health statement about them. Um, I think that Batman is just an aspect of Bruce's personality and a part of who he is that was yes created when he was a child but it also represents the totality of his life experience really and so of course it would be difficult for you to conceal and reject an aspect of who you are as a person which is why i presume this isn't the first time that bruce has been in a high speed race where he could have died i presume he does other things that are very risky he needs to let this out yeah, there's a tension that that needs to be released. I I wrote it down as uh, 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 he's on edge. He himself is on edge and and unfulfilled, and so therefore, because he's doing these things, he's trying to get as close to the edge as possible. Because later in the book, he consistently says, "You know, I could die here, right? Like, and that would be fine." Because he's he's sort of looking for that out. Reading this as Batman edging makes me recontextualize <laughs> things. <laughs> Well, I think, you know, to, to to go back to the point about what Frank Miller thinks about the psychology of these characters, I think that we can see that all of them are essentially on life support until they start expressing themselves. Bruce mm. is actively trying to kill himself. Two-Face is, he doesn't, he doesn't exist. And then when they fix him, quote unquote, He's a shell of himself until he decides to go and start killing again. And the Joker doesn't even have his face. He's blank until Batman comes back and now he can be alive. So I don't think they're crazy in this comic book. I think they're just not living because they're not expressing themselves as who they are. Hmm. It's like they're in a constant limbo state. Yeah. Yeah. Which that tenseness lends itself to the idea of the cold war hmm. you know that uh, something's going to happen we don't know when and i don't know th that 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 anxiety of all of that kind of being hmm. built into the characters uh is yeah i didn't even think about that until you brought that up so and yes go ahead. something's gonna happen we don't know what we don't know when but damned if we don't have to go to work tomorrow and then when and it happens everything yeah. starts happening yeah and the heat wave breaks when Batman emerges. Yep. Rain comes down. Born again. Yep. 
Good self-reference. It's it's phenomenal. I got to say, a break from the narrative, this is the most I've ever loved this comic book. Now I see the genius. Hmm. Now that, I see it. Is that due to reading history about it, or the or contextualizing itself, like it contextualizing it for the show, or just the way you read comics now? It's just a better read. It's so many factors. The last time I read this was was many years ago, a different version of me with a different set of eyes, less you know critical experience and and analysis, a different perspective on Batman and what Batman could be, and also. I just learned, I I realized some things while I was reading this. Like, I was reading this and I was like, you know what? I get why I didn't like this as much before. Because it's weird as fuck. Yeah. (laughs) And I realized, oh, oh, this is satire. Hmm. Not all of this is meant to be taken that seriously. Like, if you really look at the talking head segments, it's totally shitting on media. It's it's actively parodying media. There'd be a Tucker Carlson one if this was made today, you know? Yeah, yeah. The president is literally Reagan, right? Or Nixon, Reagan. Uh, Reagan, Reagan. Yeah, and he's a zombie. Mm -hmm. I was like, oh, this is totally making fun of the whole thing. So the things that feel over the top are deliberate. Mm -hmm. It's not goofy. It's it's the point. That helped me a lot. Hmm. So, Sean, we uh, we did a book club, two or one book book club ago for Sin City, another Frank Miller joint. Um, how does it? How does this feel in comparison to Frank Miller's other works? Now that he has more of a sandbox to play in, that's pre-established in a way, even though he reinvents it completely. I'm glad you brought that up because that was another thing I wanted to say. Reading Sin City also helped me to understand this. It helped me to understand because Sin City represent, uh, presents you with a lawless world that truly doesn't have morality. So you have to look at the actions of the characters through that specific lens, and you can't really bring your worldly view of it, of your worldly view of things to it. You have to leave that out on the outside. And I felt similarly about this. You have to come into this book prepared to accept the fact that it is satirical, that mm. this is through the lens of Batman and that it's not necessarily the case that anybody's anybody's perspective is right. It's just force against force. And Batman is the absolute force. Hmm. It's it's so funny to me that at, at least for me, historically, uh, I read strikes again first. That was my first exposure to Frank Miller and, yeah, uh, I think that was maybe my first exposure to Frank Miller, actually. Um, And so I went backwards, and I still kind of came back around to where you are. Um, I think it's really interesting. Yeah, and I'm really glad that I landed at this place, uh, especially now, because this is a brilliant book. There's so much good here. It's crazy. Uh, So... I want to talk about the villains and what Frank was trying to do and why those villains were chosen. And when I say villain, I really just mean antagonist to Batman, anything that's Mm. in his way, basically. Um, 
So you have you have Two Face, you have Joker, you have the mutant leader, you have the Gotham City Police Department, and you have Superman. And Superman is a proxy or a stand-in for the government, for America, you, you know, the United States, whatever. I think this is my theory that just like Morrison wanted to make Batman into a myth and just like Alan Moore wanted to make these characters mythological I think this was Frank Miller's attempt at doing that by putting Batman through the Mortal Kombat-esque tower to ascend and become a myth by defeating every level of, of everything in existence and an Olympian yeah he, he, he defeats the limitations of his own humanity by being a 55-year-old man who's able to go out and beat the shit out of the mutant leader who is at the prime of physicality. Mm. He defeats the limitations of identity by synthesizing his identity and defeating Two-Face. And then he defeats society by defeating the mutant leader and the Gotham City Police Department. He defeats America and God by beating Superman. And the death that he has makes him immortal because even though he's not dead, he inspired all of Gotham to carry out his will. And now his symbol is is a myth. Mm Hmm. I'm just picturing a Mortal Kombat-esque tower of him beating all these little bosses until he gets to Superman. Yeah. I, I, I like... Sorry, go ahead, go ahead. Well, so I, I want to put forward maybe... Maybe a slight correction, maybe a different version of the events. So I just wanted to go back and look at what the the actual events were. So he, ta- he does uh, Two-Face first. And I think you said that. I think that's him defeating. I think that's him defeating himself and accepting his role as Batman. Yeah, synthesizing his personalities. He can't beat the mutant leader until he gets Robin back. Mm. Mm. Which is more of Batman becoming Batman at that point. Yeah, I think so. Just just talking about how how Two-Face is in this and that is the way of Batman kind of shedding his human skin. I wonder if that influenced Hush down the line, even the design of it too, with the bandages. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, sure, absolutely. Yeah, I, was, I, I caught that this time around. Because he also, uh, Harvey also is, he, he gets surgery and is fixed. The other thing though about, Batman's encounter with the mutant leader is that he he says that the reason he couldn't beat him the first time is because he was fighting he was not fighting a fight he could win. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And he had to change his tactics to get that W. Um but yeah, so why do you feel do you guys have a different a- angle or lens as to why these were the characters that were, or these were the the antagonists that were chosen for Batman here. I think I think it tracks. I think your reasoning tracks. Honestly, it, it feels like constant escalation. 
Right. You know, going from street gang to Superman, there are points in between that make sense. I, I feel like uh, it, it, for me, it was mixing classic villains and classic characters. Um, I never actually thought of it that way. So, but but that makes sense in terms of the the way he has to progress into his own one into his own person and then also into whoever he's going to be to impart that that sort of legacy onto others mm. um so for me i'm like oh two-face classic villain that makes a lot of sense um mutant, mutant leader you got to have a new a new villain in this new world that makes sense superman because they're one of the big pillars of dc that makes sense in terms of inclusion i was a little more practical about it and then joker's you know obviously the the guy right um the villain and so um yeah that that just made sense to me yeah go ahead kill well i was just gonna say i i i guess i guess just to sort of add to the end of this the death of bruce wayne is the end of the book in both of metaphorical and literal sense oh sure like okay. he he fights god and the man loses but he's pure batman after that which is more symbol than man at that point right yeah absolutely and i yeah I, I, I wish i had something more interesting to uh to <laughs> add on to on to your uh, analysis but i think you're spot on <laughs> Yeah, I, the the only thing that I think um, to add um, uh, on on your point, Kale, with with Carrie um, was him coming back initially also helps to instigate the next wave of people who understand that goodwill is sort of the thing that needs to happen in order in order to change what is going on societally. Um, that's a you know, personal belief on that end, but uh, mm. for for when when they get that for when uh, when Carrie gets that first glimpse, she's like, "Oh, this guy's back." That means that the potential for good is back. The potential to correct the things that she's lived her whole life being and, and experiencing can change, and she has that confidence to change. Um, so, uh, for me, it was also like, how do you impart these stories uh, onto children? Like, like what is what is the larger meta effect of uh, superhero stories? Well. They're meant to, uh, yes, be you know wholesome stories about good versus evil, but um, you also want to you want also want to share a positive um, incentive for kids, for people who read these kinds of things. And good will be the thing, not that it will ultimately defeat the bad, but having the right intentions um, and having the right goodwill towards people will be uh, uh, will lead to that sort of success and, and that kind of hope. Um, so for, for me, when, um, when Carrie gets introduced, I love that, especially in this reading, I really felt that, oh, she saw that because she is a good individual and that didn't, the, the city didn't crush her. She just needed the, the way out. With the topic of like the end of the, like, you know, with the escalating conflict into the end of the book, shedding bruce wayne to just become batman at its core 
I know we'll get to you know questions and comments towards the end of the show, but I think there's only a good spot for this. Is, is Dan Trudeau says he thinks the opposite actually of the end. Um, it's shedding Batman and leaving only Bruce. My only argument against that would be that the idea of Batman is now spread out between the uh, what was the what was the what was the mutant gang that then becomes Batman's gang called the Batman is it or Son, yeah, the so Sons of Batman. Batman? Yeah, I think that's yeah, so more of the idea of Batman be, becoming yeah. that. Um, but that's an interesting take to completely invert how we took it. I didn't take it that way. I okay. expressed that I took it as him becoming a myth. To me, what matters is the perception of the public that yeah. Batman and, and Bruce are both dead, yet Batman will still be around. And yeah. that makes him myth. I also think, especially, you know, now we've had two sequels to this book, like, I kind of think it's impossible to argue Batman's the one who died. Because Batman is the one who shows up in the next two books. You know, it's not Bruce fighting with Captain Marvel and, you know, uh, biting off Lex Luthor's finger or whatever the fuck happens in that book. Um, you know, um, but I also think um, it's a meta, it's a, he, Bruce, Batman, the man, goes into the metaphorical monster, into the cave where the monsters live. It's not the man that survives. He becomes the monster. I think it's hard to look at this book through the lens of the fact that sequels came out because I don't think that Mm. it was created in that vein. So, you know, we I was going to talk about that more later, but I sort of take the ending of this at face value because even though we do live in a world where there were sequels, I don't think this, I don't, I don't feel like this was meant to be read that with, I don't feel like this was meant to be read with them as context for this. Sure. I, I, yeah, I agree with context, but I think clearly there's meant, you know, if not, something published that something comes after this like the ending is leading to something coming yes it implies that there's going to be you know a a continuing story in the nature of sequential comics but for this story it was probably done i i read it as as this could be its own thing like I, i like i think that's a clear cut ending yeah, there's an idea that things can continue, but they don't need to. You know, like the MCU didn't exist at the point. Nothing needs to perpetually continue at this point. I ah, think, come on. I think it's a Look, fine Hale's, standalone. Hale's absolutely right in the sense that the book implies more will happen. But that has nothing to do with what, like, whether Batman will be Batman or whether he will allow others to go out and be Batman The point is that, yes, there will be more. But what I'm saying is that we can't evaluate this ending in light of the sequels because they were not intended at the time. So what exactly would have happened is unknown to us. But if you take the book at face value, something more would have happened. 
Yeah, in that something more doesn't necessarily need to be something that was ever published. It's just the story continues. Right. Yeah, whether yeah. we're yeah. reading it or not. Yeah, that yeah. I agree with. Especially <laughs> Dark Knight Strikes Again is wildly different, too. Um, and I don't think he had planned for that to happen. I want to read that again so bad. I, oh, man. Eight years. I might like Bro, it more. I'm, I'm oh. genuinely considering proposing maybe we should do a three-part book club and hit Strikes Again next week and hit Master Race the week after. I'm not oh, hitting any Master, Master Race, race dude. I'm not doing a Master Race. I love that. Master I, Race was awesome. It was so I, good. I, no, it wasn't. I, oh, no. I don't want to do it. I mean, Ooh. after I read this, I... I, I mean, I don't want to. Sean, we're going we to talk about our general feelings towards the end because I don't want to. Yeah. Okay. All right. I'll, I'll talk to it, talk about it then. Um. So, yeah, I wanted to just talk a little bit more about the villains. Um, you know, I think we sort of understand inherently why Two Face would have been chosen for this. Two Face is a man who struggles with the fact that there are really two people in him, he has two personalities that are vying for control. And, you know, society says, psychology says, the way to fix that is to rehab his brain and fix his face. But I think really what we're learning through Two-Face is that the fix is to let him express himself and let sort of let the world, let society, let the reaction of that expression determine what should happen to Two-Face. Um, and so, similarly, Bruce isn't whole. Uh, Bruce and Batman, Batman's not whole until he goes out and does this thing again, you know, until he takes to the streets again. So I feel like this is a great look at Two-Face um, and one that I appreciate because it gets away from the the psychology aspect of it as much. It's different. And in such a short amount of time, too. Yeah. Hmm. But but it, it I think it gets away from the psychology, but to our earlier point, it also allows for you to view that he and Batman says it himself, right? I'm looking at a mirror. One part has consumed the whole. And in, in this case, it has gone to the point where through all the work, through all the sort of pushing back that you can do it doesn't change who you might fundamentally, or it might exacerbate one side of who you feel you are until the point at which it consumes you. That then, And that's why it happened with Bruce, where he's like, I just need to come back. And for Two-Face, I, actually, I really am just a piece of shit. Now the face matches. <laughs> mm. I de Yeah, I definitely think Miller's making a commentary on repression throughout this mm. entire book with all of the characters who have dual identities. Um, it's very clear what's going on with the Joker, you know? And I think a lot of the romanticized version of the Batman Joker dynamic comes from this. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if he feels androgynous throughout the, this, this run as well. So like David that... Bowie, right. Isn't that the Probably. physical inspiration? Oh, I suppose I see some of it. Yeah. I love the Zoot Suit, by the way. Big fan of the Zoot yeah. Suit Joker. Really cool. Uh, and it, it's... David Bowie or David Byrne with that great big... Uh... <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Marco, you didn't finish your statement. Did you want to... Um, no, that was it. it just the, the androgyny of it, yeah. Yeah, totally. 
the mutant leader, believe it or not, was my favorite villain of this whole piece. Oh, he's pretty cool. Was it the I nips, re- Sean? Was it the nips? <laughs> Red and Stimpy-esque nips? No, it was the bandage over the nose for the oh my God. half of his, oh, his yeah, run. True. Uh, no, what I loved about the mutant leader is that he's, first of all, he's the only antagonist that's not a pre-established Batman villain. And he represents progress in a negative way, right? Mm-hmm. And again, the book's from the book is from Batman's perspective, right? And so Batman, at some point, I believe maybe it's it's either Batman or Jim, but I'm pretty sure it's Batman, remarks about how crime used to be something that made sense to him. People were robbing for money, they were taking purses or whatever. And now these criminals, these new criminals are lawless. To me, that sounds very much like what an old person would say, evaluating the newness of something and juxtaposing it with the way things were when they grew up. Yeah. There's no way that Batman thinks that. <laughs> like, in his era, you already had the Joker doing mm. mass murder. You had all these crazy villains doing crazy things. So... That's that's my read on it. But the mutant leader is a perfect physical specimen who's clearly not dumb. He just doesn't care about anything. He's all about strength. He's pure force. It's the force of his youthful ignorance and stupidity versus the force of Batman's, you know, elder strength and knowledge, knowing the way things ought to be. And it's those two things mashing together and he overcomes that his will is undeniable even the even his age even his creaking bones even his lack of speed none of that is enough to beat the fact that his will is just greater than the mutant leaders what i like about the mutant leader because i'm with you sean i like mutant leader Not, not even just from from like a design aesthetic he looks ridiculous um, the it looks like a Mad Max villain uh, above any, anything else, um, but I like the fact that it, it it is a representation of street level Gotham crime. And previous to this, it's always been gangsters and mobsters, and there's been almost a a, a rule book for that. You know, it was almost understandable how those people would work. I mean, year one isn't until eighty seven, so it's not till a year after this is published, um, but the mutant leader is now the antithesis of that. It's it's chaotic. It's wild. It it seems, at least from Batman's perspective, because that's how this book is written, um, to not make too much sense. And it needs to be controlled. And that's what Batman does here. I was going to counter uh, Sean with, you know, similar to Tyler's point on, on like the, you know, petty crime was not that. Uh, uh, petty crime has changed and, and that's sort of the commentary that bruce is making is that you know previously it was because somebody was hungry and needed to to you know, make ends meet or something like that whereas now you know even when when the when two of those those mutants approach him you know they recognize that bruce is kind of looking for it and it's like oh this guy's into it like we were into it for the sake of being into it not because we needed something from him um but now that that energy is sort of being met, it's uh, it, it's wards them off. Um, but but then I was thinking, but then you have um, 
freaking two faces, you know, lackeys, right? I'm sure you had jokers, lackeys who to some degree would have, uh, would have had to accept the zaniness of their own crime in the context of, well, I'm doing it for a supervillain. So I think it's a good point. I think people always feel like things are, you know, it's the, it's the halcyon days, right? Everybody looks at their, at the past with such rose colored glasses when it comes to certain things. And it makes a lot of sense why Batman would think like that. Mm. Um, He needs a motivator to get him in, into action. And these mutants are perfect for that. Uh, the the thing that gets him into action, um, I was curious. I had wrote down um, if you guys had a specific word that you could ascribe to that feeling that he had that finally took him over to the edge. Because they they don't they don't say something, or, or rather, Frank doesn't actually put a word to it. It's all done through the the visuals, through the intensity of you know his reactions. But it's never a thing of like vengeance or rage or so I'm, I'm i'm curious what a word you guys could use to describe what that change for him and feeling was the going over the edge in what sense like the joker bit or the superman bit like no uh, early climbers. early like uh the the first issue where he's uh he was reflecting on him falling down and discovering the cave and then uh the bat that breaks through the window that finally convinces him i need to i need to become the batman again what is this version of bruce wayne's uh inciting incident and and, and mm-hmm. what is that what does that feel like i mean i think i mean obviously miller explores that more in year one in a more continuity based way um it's funny i don't even think about batman's origin too much in this book honestly he and for me this is such a, a pre-established character and then an evolution of that pre-established character that um, that's what I focus on, but I'm curious. I, I don't know if I can actually pick a, a singular word to describe that. Because, because you know, his origin is is for his parents, right? But it's no longer about salvation. That like that 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 is no longer the reason that he has become Batman. And he's looking out, and to me, it felt almost like, uh, and 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 maybe this is digging into Miller's like um, perspective, but it felt like pity. Like he pities the world and what it's become to the extent that he needs to be that action to change it into something that he could potentially be proud of. I guess the word I would use would be control then. I don't think it's, I, I'm not reading it as pity as much as the world exists the way it is and only I can fix it. Hmm. I, I really look at, I again, like I look at Batman in this book through the lens of this Frank Miller quote that I read earlier. Uh, that I'll read again. That's what we need, a gigantic father figure to straighten this all out. Mm. He's looking outside his window in real life and saying, whoa, this is crazy. Wish we had Batman. And now in this comic, here is a man manifest, an old fatherly type of man to kick the shit out of these youths who don't know any better. And so I don't, I, I guess, I guess if I had to boil that down into one word, um shoot i don't know because i'm sure we can feel it but i i just don't know how to like how to describe it and that and that that stumped me for a second it was the first time that in reading this i i sat there for like a while just kind of like what is that i'm gonna say compulsive 
to be honest. Mm. I think Batman is compelled to do this in this book by his inner turmoil, his repression, and the fact that he's mm. not happy living less of himself. And I think he needs to do this. And it just so happens that a scenario has presented itself in Gotham that necessitates Batman. Thank goodness for that. I think he needs to do this. And so he's compelled to. I go with compulsion. Yeah, I can't come up with a a, a one-word thing, and I, I'm not going to pretend to, but it, it, it reads to me like, um, you know, sometimes like uh, people who are gay will talk about like their awakening and then like their acceptance of their new identity and then they have like this second uh adolescence mm. where they go out and you know especially like older uh you know lgbt people they'll they'll go out they'll start going out to clubs and they'll start living the way they would have you know back when they were young again so mm. this book is the coming out of this version of batman which I think persists through the modern day, honestly. Also, real quick, to the idea of an origin, I think the first book of this is an origin unto itself. I think it I mm. think it represents the origin of the reemergence of Batman. Mm. You know, he's reconfronting things that initially um, motivated him to be Batman. He's reconfronting the reasons why he's no longer Batman. And scenarios are now presenting themselves to make him that again. Um, And I see a lot of, like, I think he's sort of even delusional in this. Where I think he's seeing things that aren't even there. Like those times we see the bat, you know, flying through the window or... Things like that. I feel like those aren't real things that are happening. I think he needs this that bad. Otherwise, he needs an exterminator. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. He's got a real problem. Uh, let Let's talk about Carrie Kelly. We haven't talked about her too too much, oh, and she's the new Robin for this book. I think Carrie Kelly is a character that has stood the test of time in terms of people's. Um, enjoyment of her character. Not that she's had a ton, ton of appearances since this. Go ahead. Kate. I think I think it's interesting because I this book is so Batman focused and Batman's journey. I don't find Carrie particularly like obviously she's relevant. She's his partner, but she just kind of. I don't know. It feels like she just kind of happens to be there. Like she, to me, it kind of feels like she doesn't do a ton. Especially for the, you know, for so many people to be as into her as, as they are, you know? She, the, she says Batman. So, so does Superman. Yeah, but uh, Superman, fine, warranted, but, you know, you, Robin? Nine, not warranted. Well, she wasn't Robin then. She didn't get hired. She had the costume. 
<laughs> I, 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 I like her for her tenacity. I like her for yeah. her, her, her ability to be, to, to know that she doesn't like certain situations and the way that she was growing up. Um, uh, somebody in the chat, robot is in she, uh, a loss, one of the lost youth that doesn't fall into a otherwise life of crime as it might easily be. You know, she's, she tries, she's, she's smart, she's quick. Um, and she's willing to similarly disrespect authority, even in the form of Batman. And I, I, I found that interesting. Like, you know, don't, don't touch the controls uh, or say, and say this thing or else you're fired, right? That was a bit, you're fired. And she, she would always do the right thing counter to what Batman, the, the order said. And I think that for me in reading this was him testing her ability to be and see when she needs to say no to certain situations um, and actually should be the, who Robin is. Robin, Robin's character, aside from being Batman's sidekick, uh, is also one that helps and saves individuals, even when they're uh, they're not allowed to, uh, or the permission is not granted. And um, I think she lives up to uh, all of that, and 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 manages to to ground Bruce. There's a bit there where maybe you know the soldier aspect comes out a bit, which um, I, I always find interesting. But she she's she's kind. And, and I think he needs that in, in, uh, in this world. Especially this world. I think he needs to be grounded. You know, I think that the first bit where Carrie meets Batman, and he's beat up by the mutant leaders, and then she gets in the Batmobile with him, even though Alfred says no, and Bruce immediately says, I, my name's Bruce, you know, immediately reveals himself to her. Um, adds A, levity to this situation because it's kind of messed up. Um and grounds Batman because he needs that to be Batman correctly. She's also a great foil and a necessary foil for the mutant leader and what the mutants represent, which is, you know, the, the ills of youth and oh, the kids are fucking everything up. You know, she's, she's a good kid beyond, beyond everything else that she is. She's just a good kid. And she very much feels like, you know, a Dick Grayson type that she has, she's made of a similar kind of stuff and she's made of a similar kind of stuff as Batman is. She doesn't have the tragic origin, but she's got heart and she's got will and her will is undeniable as well. It's so undeniable that Batman takes her in and she breaks all his rules and she's not fired. Yeah, bro. So good. And he smiles. Yeah. He always feels like a Willy Wonka in a way. Like he he needs to have the person break those rules to know that he's of uh, that they're of sound mind to do what needs to be done. Right. I also think that through her we can we can get to a place where Frank Miller is able to satirize Batman as well, because he's this ultra serious guy, ugh, you know, this big tough dad, and he folds to this sweet girl, right? And we see his delusions through the things that he says to her that she's like, ah, whatever. There's a moment where uh, there's some some device that 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 they're using. I forget exactly what it is. And he's like, yeah, you wouldn't understand. It was a computer. It's a, some device. Jeez. Um, 
and uh she, he's like yeah you would understand how this works and she's like yeah of course not and then later on she clearly uses it and he's like whoa how do you know how to do that and she's just like well you know um mm, and so smart. i think it it pokes fun at batman too mm. um the book has a few cameos in it that aren't the major ones that we've talked about you get selena kyle who is the owner of a brothel Typical Frank Miller at that point. Can't be a book without some form of prostitution in it. Ooh, there was some, in rereading this, some, some, especially in light of Sin City, not some favorable ways to treat women in this, like in in background descriptions and things like that. I was like, ooh, okay. You get get your Carrie Kellys, and then you get your Selena Kyles in this. (laughs) That's right. Thank you, Nomis. It It was the cloaking device. Okay, so I'm not that foolish. It wasn't just a computer. Thank you. Um, yeah, we know, of course, that Frank Miller would would portray Selena as probably, possibly some sort of prostitute in year mm-hmm. one, but certainly associating with them and having close ties. Here we see that she's a brothel owner. So in a way, this is year one is showing us the precursor to what to how we got to this place. Yeah, but it certainly doesn't treat Catwoman or Selena with any kind of respect befitting of the character that we associate her with being. Mm. And I thought that that was kind of interesting. She's not presented the way that the women in Sin City are presented, where they're very powerful. You know, when you read that book, you got to forget, oh, prostitutes, that's a lowly job. No, they run shit. The the women Mm. in that book are strong. Here, Selena doesn't really get to do much. Yeah. Yeah, old lady. Yeah, uh, I mean the, the the phone call, um, to that frailty, uh, that voice message. It's Selena. I'm lonely. Like that's all she gets. Yeah. Yeah, you got your. The the uh, what is it the, the the way women are depicted in media. You've got your your virgin, your whore, your mother figure. Um, and I guess Wonder Woman being the um. Uh, the the uh bondage, the wife, mother figure in the uh, in strikes again. Mm. Well, was there? I don't know if anyone has context for this, but was there a romantic element to Batman and Catwoman at this point already? Uh, yeah, probably day one. That seems like a yeah. Yeah, I don't. I don't have the context for it. Day one. Um, I just thought it was interesting the way Joker kisses uh, Selena in this, and then Bruce kisses Selena a couple pages later. Um, it was an, another hey? good uh, uh, mirroring of the two. The other uh, cameo we got is Green Arrow, Oliver Queen, who's uh, missing a limb, which is you know unfortunate for him, um, but. Uh, he plays a, a sort of pivotal role in helping Batman in his fight against Superman. Interestingly, he was not originally going to be in the book at all. Huh. I mean, he doesn't show up till, towards the end anyway, you know? Yeah. Originally, that whole thing go, w- was going to go down differently. And I guess at some point they decided, oh, we need another, you know, another super guy. Huh. It's funny because he shows up and strikes again, again. Um, but did Frank Miller ever really write him outside of those two? 
I like the voice that he has for Oliver Queen in this a lot. Um, Because because the idea of a jaded uh, superhero without powers, I think, makes sense for Oliver Queen. I think I think the problem would be that Miller's too conservative. Yeah, I know. Yeah, for Oliver Queen. We of course that's the one bit of it we don't touch in this book. Well, yeah, (laughs) because that's as liberal as Frank Miller could get. Um, Dan asks, how would you characterize the new police commissioner? Might as well get to that. Um, Punchable. Yeah. <laughs> I like her. Yeah, I liked her fine. Um, she's She doesn't really get to do a whole ton, but I appreciated her character when she comes into Gordon's office and she's like, you know, I, I'm ready to work. And he's like, well, you're, the job's not ready for you yet. And she's like, I'm ready to do anything. Yeah. Um, you know, she's not she's not as much of a patsy as they think she's gonna be. You know, she wants to do the right things. And and that's why I think Gordon gives her that that speech. Cause he cause he, he mentions, you know, I I've I've seen your record. But he they you know, they probably just hired you because this is your stance. Um and she's like, Yeah, but you know, I, I know that I'm more than that. Um and then he's like he, he I think he sees a level of potential flexibility that he had to learn, you know, the hard way, and that she could potentially be ready to learn the hard way, or or has the capacity to learn. And so I I, I sort of saw saw that as like a good passing of the torch. I, I like that. I liked her a lot. Oh, okay. Dan meant as a woman character. I see what you mean. Um, yeah. She doesn't get enough to do to really evaluate, like for me anyway, to really evaluate that aspect. Um, Selena is treated, I thought, really badly. Um, I think her name is Ellen. Or, yeah. Yeah. Um, she fares a bit better, but she's not, you know, she's not really a focus. Yeah, no offense. I don't really look towards Frank Miller's work for shining examples of female characters. <laughs> Yeah, I, I had a a, a quick, just a, a vague, quick Google of those tropes I was trying to uh, come up with, and the one that stands out to me that I missed is the career woman, which I think is a polite way of uh, saying that uh, she is not interested in any of the other angles that were covered. Yeah. So the, okay. So the way I, (laughs) Sean's looking at me real confused. So I'm going to have to just go there. So we've got the whore, the, oh boy. (laughs) We're live. The whore, the whore, the virgin, the, uh, what was the other one? The mother and then the bitch. And I think the bitch is typically like the career woman, the, you know, the evil uh, type character. I think that's where Ellen would fit. Marco, Kale is talking in archetypes, not his opinion. (laughs) You you made a face there too. You're like, oh. No, no, no. Because he did the thumbs up thing and I laughed as as that happened. I didn't didn't do that. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I saw it. I don't know, Kale. I was there. 
All right, let's talk a little bit more about Superman because Superman is probably the most controversial part of this book. A lot of people get really mad about the portrayal of Superman in The Dark Knight Returns. Now, one of the things that is common about people's perspective of Superman, especially outside of comic book readers now, is that he is a Boy Scout. That he's lame, that he's not that cool, that he's a stooge. Truth, justice, and the American way and all of that. Now, even as far back as the 80s, that kind of sentiment was still strong, but it was falling out of favor. And you had a lot of people who were disillusioned by that. So, of course, Frank Miller would take the character who stands for truth, justice, and the American way and make him the stand-in for America and, you know, make him sort of a joke in, in the eyes of, of, of the fans, I guess. Um, this was never the way that Superman was portrayed. The idea of a bad Superman didn't really exist, you know, like as a, as a thing that people were very obsessed with and into. So this was really shocking. And I think it pissed a lot of people off. It pissed me off to some degree, when I first read this. But I also didn't really care about Superman, and I kind of thought of him as a patsy. So I was like, whatever, he's a stooge, fine. But reading it again, I don't quite see it exactly that way anymore. So, first of all, context is king. Frank Miller does not like Superman that much. Point of fact. He said... Regarding uh, these the relationship, he said, quote, I always thought it was silly that in World's Finest, they had Batman and Superman as friends. He also said that when he was a kid, one of the things he really wanted to see was Batman kick Superman's ass. Hell yeah, dude. So, of course, when he got to make his own Batman comic, that's what he chose to do. But that being said, I feel like Superman gets misunderstood in this book. Yes, he's definitely a stooge of the United States government. But in my read, it's not because he just believes in America that much. I think it's because he's trying to prevent the end of the world. I think he thinks that the world is on the brink of disaster and that if he doesn't play this position, mm. that it's going to end. And that would be the greatest failure that could possibly happen. And I also think he thinks that superheroes were driving towards that reality. Mm. Miller or, or Superman? Superman. Oh, Superman being Miller. Okay. I, I agree with that. Um, I, I, think, I think he's playing the practical approach here. He is, he is saying, I have to make a decision. I have to make a choice. Earth is no longer the choice. It is a certain collective of people that have power and influence in the world as much as he might philosophically disagree with that. And uh, maybe he doesn't like to execute the will of those individuals, but uh, the the alternative is rockets fly at each other because they know that Superman exists or that there are superheroes in the world. And um, so he's very, unfortunately, pragmatic. But I, I, I really like this version of Superman because I think it is ultimately what happens when you can't stop everything uh, when you can't stop all the bad guys, right? Like as much as he might want to, 
And as much as maybe he thinks he has the power to stop everything and fix all the world's problems, he's going to miss something. And I forget, we read, we read a book where you know, he, he's not able to do everything. Um, and uh, he has to wrestle with that. And this is, for me, the logical conclusion of thinking through, well, I can't save everybody, so I have to have proxies. And America is going to be the proxy. One of my favorite sequences in the entire book is when the missile explodes and Superman mm. is impacted by that and the sun is is out. And he's talking very clearly to the earth yeah. in his mind. And he's saying, he says, uh, um, they can do this and you laugh. They can split the very fabric of reality Blast 100,000 tons of sand into the sky, blotting out the source of all my power, the hope for mil for screaming millions, magnetic storm. You have every reason to be outraged, Mother Earth. You have given them everything. They are tiny and stupid and vicious, but please listen to them. Please. I am slow and dying. I need only reach the sun. Mm. So I feel like it's not that he's some wimp. It's that he's choosing what he thinks is the least risky thing to try and save earth. And he's trying to save earth from itself right. in the same way. He's trying to save his superhero friends from themselves. Yep. So I think he gets a bad rap. I don't have a problem with this version of Superman. And I want to be clear. This is not any other version of Superman, but Frank's. No, I don't think that there's a time in history where this is the choice that Superman would have made. I really don't. But I understand what Frank was doing, and I don't think he turned Superman just simply into a stooge. I think he's more than that. And, and I think the other thing is, like, this is the same year, 86, the same year uh, Man of Steel, John Byrne's Man of Steel came out. And that Man of Steel would make a different decision here. But this is Batman's story. It's not Superman's mm. story. So I think the, the 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 choice that Superman makes to eventually fight Batman, or, or Batman makes that choice for Superman, honestly, on this, um, with the help of Oliver Queen, um, is shouldn't be a reflection on Superman as much as it's a reflection on Batman's choices. Yeah. Hmm. It's not crazy to say that the art's fantastic love it man it's so good e even like the, the what jumped out out to me on this read through was the news segments in the varying different types of faces throughout it like you get a face that's like it looks like um uh, kale who's the who's the bald british guy that was in justin wonka he was in alice in wonderland white dude actor never mind um they have Mark this like Strong? weird what was that i don't know Okay. I mean, keep going. Just, yeah. Yeah. They would have these like weird, like almost like undetailed faces where it's just a couple lines, you know, that insult yeah. you're easy to draw. That's what these people look like. Um, but they're, they're so recognizable. Yes. Like when you see them yep. again and you do, you know who it is. And, and the, the couple of pages that, that really jump out to me are obviously the horse scene, that big splash page of Batman on the horse. Um, and that whole mutant fight scene, which is probably why I like the mutants as much as you, Sean. Um, with how muddy it is. The characters themselves look muddy already uh, in the sense that their skin is 
kind of gross. <laughs> Everyone looks a little wrinkly, old, disgusting, and you add a literal mud fight scene onto it. Uh, just the grittiness of it was so good. Uh, the uh, there were moments, and, and this goes back to just like the tightness of the pages for me. Um, in particular, the TV segments. I despise the TV segments because the text is on top and not yeah. underneath, and it drives me crazy every single time. Because that uh, I, I don't understand why he he made that choice. It is obviously an artistic choice, um, but it throws me off every time, and I have to read those pages two, three times over. Um, and that's not how they typically are presented in, in comics. So he kind of goes counter to what you'll typically do. Things are things are usually uh, at the bottom out if it's not in panel. Um, so that way you can keep a, a sequential flow of image to text, image to text versus text to image. Um, I don't know how you guys felt about the those moments, but I know for sure that was a, a frustration that, that I always have reading this book. I didn't get that. I didn't catch that. That didn't that didn't catch me. Rather, it caught me, but it didn't hamper me. Like once I, you know, once I saw it and I registered it, I went, "Oh my bad," and kept going. I think it was a mean earlier asked like what I think about this the 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 excessive. Well, you know, maybe excessive word balloons and you know the new segments and all of that. Uh, I think by and large, all of it is effective at conveying what Miller is trying to convey. Media plays an important role in our lives, and it has certainly since this book was written. And I think he's saying something about that. Um, but I also think it helps to give us information that we need to get without having to devote too many panels to showing us that information in maybe a more interesting way. But I do think he goes over the top also. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think it's perfectly done. But it's very rarely frivolous, whereas I think a lot of times in modern comics, it, at least to me, it does feel frivolous. Yeah, there's there's a point to a lot of, to almost everything that he says. Even when he gets wordy, like the moments where, for example, the, um, the psychologists are talking, um, that's parody because they, they start to, examine him and they start to use these very you know academic terms and it's all about breaking down the psyche and this this and that and um it's functional uh and and meant for you to to sort of poke fun and laugh at well and even even in those moments uh there were times when the news person would cut away and talk about something you know uh asinine and you know fashion or whatever and then you would cut back and the psychologist or the scientist or whatever would be in the middle of a sentence mm. you know and it you know that's that's obviously satire in the way of like uh, modern world just obviously doesn't care about facts or academics or you know anything uh, more broad or complicated than what's in front of them immediately there are so many iconic images in this book i mean so much of the visual language of batman was you know what if you don't want to say defined by this book certainly i think we can say refined 
and mm-hmm. you know represented. It, it's funny that the, one of the iconic panels is the Batman breaking the shotgun, saying we don't use the the, enemy, the weapon of our enemy, and I didn't realize mm-hmm. it is a small panel on a page. Yeah. But like that one's been shared for since I've been reading comics, and it's like um like in the trade, it's like the inside of the page, so I had to like stretch out my book a bit to be able to see yeah. the whole thing. Same with the cover of your book. That panel of Batman is that reflection panel that uh, we were talking about earlier in his conversation with Two Face. Mm-hmm. Teeny tiny panel. Batman riding the horse. Yep. Obviously, the lightning. Yeah. There's just so many. He just understands the way Frank does to present Batman in a way that evokes every single thing that Batman is and make it look cool as hell. He captures it in the right moment of its sort of transition. Like as you're going from panel to panel, it's the it's the most heightened moment that he manages to find. Yeah. Like even this panel, I feel like this one where he jumps out yeah, of the tank ready to fight fighting, the mutant yeah, leader. Yeah, <laughs> I think that was a cover of one of them. Yeah, he's just hyped. Like he just wants that action. He's happy that again. Was, when he's blasting cheese. those mutants in the tank, he's smiling. It's the happiest I've ever seen Batman in my life. Great book. So. We're going to get to you guys in a moment, and we're going to get to the giveaway in a moment and all of that. We've gotten a ton of comments. We want to read them and talk back with you guys. That's an essential part of the book club. Make sure you're hitting the like button. If you've been enjoying this conversation, super chats are open. Super stickers are open. Patreon.com slash the comics pals. Channel memberships are open. I see all you channel members. Thank you. And by the way, if you want to partake in the giveaway, all you have to do is leave a comment or ask a question about the book. We're going to put all the names in a randomizer and we'll let that determine who the winner will be. And you have to be able to message me on discord in order to receive your prize. Also, if you want to abstain from prizing because you already own the book and don't feel like you need another copy, let us know. Don't feel obligated if you win, you win. But if you would like to abstain, that's fine too. And if you win, give it to somebody else and tell them that we do a podcast. Sure, exactly. So this is a book that has been adapted in parts or whole many times. Mm. Many, many times. And in this read-through, it was a lot easier for me to see so, so many of the inspirations. That was a a damper on this reading for me. Was almost the fact that I felt like, man, I've read this story so much. And, and yes, I've read this book before. But I've also read this story of Batman in cartoons, in comics, in that really bad movie that nobody liked. Um, so it was kind of like, all right, I want to read Dark Knight Strikes again, again. <laughs> uh, because at least that story isn't so permeated throughout the media. Um, it's it's good, and this is like the definitive version of it. This is what everything's based on, and, I, and, and it's phenomenal. But I did feel like, ugh, it's this Batman story again, you know? Well, one of the... One of the premier adaptions is the animated version that Mm. came out over a decade ago, and it's got two parts to it. 
I wanted to watch it again to see how I felt about it. And I loved it. I loved it. It's it's actually fantastic. Yeah. People sleep on those animated DC movies. They're more good than bad. Like I like it doesn't nail absolutely all of the context of this book, but I think it gets very close to doing that. I was surprised. I actually watched it before I read this. Um, and I was surprised by how much verbatim dialogue there was, mm. um, which I, I really appreciated. I really like when they adapt as closely as possible. Um, it was great. I had a great time watching it. I think it lives up to the legacy of the book as best as you can, really. Hmm. Yeah, I watched it when it came out, and I did not like it. Hmm. Um, I could not tell you how I'd feel about it now. but The one thing I say about the animated series or, or- – movie rather is that it's hard to adapt Frank Miller's art style for motion I think it does a decent job but it is a lot more flatter than Miller's stuff it doesn't have the style yeah yeah and I find that to be an issue with those newer animated or or the more recent ones Um, they just don't they don't have a style the same way like the Bruce Tim stuff did. It's very uniformed. And, and growing up on so much of that, like seeing these people that actually look like people, it's just not, you know, not as good. And then you look at something like The Dark Knight Rises, which I mean, I never realized this before, but the mutant leader is Bane. He Batman has the same sort of trajectory and reason for why he's able to defeat Bane as he does the mutant leader when he fights Bane the first time. And and again, what I'm about to tell you is a part of a very large theory that I have about the Dark Knight Rises, but we'll never get into that. Um, So when he fights Bane the first time, he has the same energy as he does in this comic where he's excited to be Batman again. And he feels like he's 30 years old and he's yeah, Superman yeah. and he can do anything. And then he comes across Bane and he gets the absolute shit kicked out of him. But he's fighting Bane's fight. He's fighting a man who is much bigger and stronger than him with his hands and feet. Like he's just going to outmatch Bane physically. And he can't do that. So he loses. And then the next time they fight, he applies strategy. But not only that, he synthesized himself, which is a part of my larger theory, and become more Batman than he's ever been, and he outsmarts Bane, and he outwills Bane. Because in the movie, Bane's power really comes from belief, and he don't believe in himself anymore. Batman's force is greater than his. Not the force of his fist, but the force of his will. And so Bane loses, just like the mutant leader loses, for the exact same reason. I thought a lot about the movie. That's the most analysis I've listened to of Dark Knight Rises, honestly. <laughs> yeah. I thought a lot about it. Um, but even the the scene where where Batman first reemerges with the tank and the old cop tells the young one, oh, you're in for a show tonight. Yeah, that's, yeah. That's directly in the movie as well. Yeah. I didn't mean to go on a Rises rant. But... I, ju- I just hate that they have the same initials. It's confusing. <laughs> it's so confusing. <laughs> um, but yeah. 
So this has been adapted a lot. I think this is always going to remain the definitive version because it's Frank's will. You know, it's Frank's purest uh, idea of what this book ought to be. It's hard to encapsulate it all. You know what jumps out to me is that this was coming out simultaneously with Born Again. Uh, they both had their first issues in February in 86. Year one? Uh, no. Dark Knight. Oh, uh, Daredevil, Daredevil. Born Again. Daredevil. Yeah. Oh. Whoa. And the same that. year that Man of Steel comes out, same year Watchmen comes out, uh, same year that, what was the other thing that I saw also comes out here? Uh, uh, Mouse as well. Um, oh. Which is like, Best year of comics, just from a historical standpoint, possibly yeah, strong ass year. Good year for books. Let's get into our final general thoughts before we hand it over to the listeners and answer their thoughts and questions. It's it's up there for Batman books for me. Um, I still think personally, year one is just it. It just speaks to me more from a stylistic point. But I don't. I don't think. I think this is an undeniable book when it comes to its importance, not even just for Batman, but for superhero comics in general. And also, like, it's just a damn good book. Um, the way it looks, the way it reads, too. I think. I think it. it the way uh, it works in books, as chapters, really is a good um, narrative device. And each and giving almost each chapter its own mini boss in a way. Um, I can see how it might not be everyone's cup of tea because Frank Miller is a little divisive as a person and as a writer, um, but it's undeniable. Yeah. Um, it's just good comics through and through. Um, from an aesthetic perspective, the, uh, the narrative itself, um, I think... Uh, not the number one. I think I'd give that to Hush just because that's a personal thing. You, but, can, you still finally have, a, you finally have five to fill out a top five now. <laughs> what a solid Batman book. Like, yeah. you can't deny bad. it's a Batman book. Yeah, it was all right. It exists. Yeah. And, I'm, and I'm thankful that it does. But uh, I, I'm, I'm, but. <laughs> I'm, but I'm hard pressed to, to read the other ones because I'm, uh, I haven't, re- re- coming out of this, I'm, I, I'm really interested in, in getting Strikes Again because um, I had read that years ago uh, only in light of this. Uh, and I was like, catching up on, on my that was my first set of, of comics. Um, so it's interesting that this is the foundation for what would come down the road. And as I grew as a reader, um, Master Race and things like that. So, um, yeah, I think a foundational a foundational book, not just for Batman, but for comic books at large. A lot of technique, a lot of things that in coming back to this book, um, I feel like if you're a, a writer or an artist, um, you can learn a lot from the construction of, and craft of this comic. Did three out of four, of, four of us read Strikes Again before this? I did. I did too, yeah. Oh, no, I, I read this and then I read... Gotcha, okay, I, misun- uh, I misunderstood what you were saying there. Yeah, okay. yeah. Yeah, this... Uh... This one holds a weird place for me. I, I obviously I like it a lot, and I, I got a lot more out of it this time than probably any other time. And I really, and maybe you know, maybe it's that I'm roughly in the same 
uh, age range and level of jadedness that Frank Miller was when he started it. Uh, but um, I, you know, e- even reading reading it this time, like thinking about the way, like the the uh, the hysteria of like the of society in Gotham. Uh, it sort of grows and grows and gets crazier and crazier toward the the end of the book. Um, and then, you know, when you allow yourself to think about strikes again and the way that it does feel, it, it genuinely feels like 20 years later, you know, uh, blows me away. So if nothing else, what this book does for me is it makes me want to read more and find more of what Frank was trying to do with these books. Yeah, you know, I said it before I got more out of this with this reread than I ever have. I I really, really love how much Frank had to say here and how much he was working with here. I learned from Sin City that to appreciate a Frank Miller comic fully, you have to accept that you're entering into something else. You know, you're entering into another world. And I, I accepted that when I turned the page here to the first one. And I realized at some point, oh, this is this is this is purely Frank Miller's interpretation. This doesn't have anything to do with what anybody else thinks about anything. Not the world, not Batman, not Superman, nothing. And I was fascinated by that. It's an indie comic in the sense that it's not beholden to the corporate POV. It does, it's Frank doing what Frank wants. And that's rare in comics. And I really appreciated that. I love it. It's brilliant. It's definitive. It's defining for a reason. It's not my favorite Batman story, but I think now it's in my top. I think it's it's bumped itself up into that echelon for me. Love it, love it, love it. All right. We've said a mouthful. We've said a lot. Let's let the listeners have their say. Let's hit some some comments. We can we want to hear from you guys. If you wanna, you know, have a shot at winning your own copy of this book, or if you just want to chat with us, now's the time. So uh we'll we'll read some of your comments from earlier, but also if there's something you really want us to tackle and we you sent it earlier, send it on through again. Now's the time. And we can hit some Discord questions too that we got. Um, I have one that I, I pulled that I uh, wanted to shout out really quick. Yeah. From, um, Amin, uh, this was earlier in the conversation, but he mentioned how he, uh, he said, I also like how Miller portrays the mutant gang, lost souls searching for an authority voice. The moment the leader is beaten, they switch to Batman. It feels really good. It feels real. The youth pivoting to that, um, and I think it's a good point uh, because the I feel like uh, the youth is imp- they're impressionable, and that was that's what they're seeing and that's what they are experiencing in their day to day lives. And so you sort of fall into those things, which is why I think the that first instance where Carrie sees Batman, she's impressionable. And she carries that idea through as opposed to what she would have otherwise had she continued to potentially persist in, in the city, 
you know, her parents were stoners, uh, seemingly burnouts. Uh, she would have walked to school, maybe gotten killed one day, you know, otherwise. Well, yeah, I, go ahead. One, th- one thing I re- that really stuck with me is how when Batman breaks up the initial mutant gang, they all kind of go different ways. You know, some some of them join the naked Nazi lady, and then others join a a Nixon gang. Yeah, and I I really I really think that 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 was used expertly by Miller to hammer home the idea of that the idea of symbols plays a factor and leadership and the role that you know you can play by impressing yourself upon others. Batman's actions impress himself upon others so that people want to follow him the same way the mutant leaders did the same way that two faces do or jokers or anybody with influence in the book. And it's always a struggle of the force of another of one's will over another. And the winner manages to get people captivated and on and wanting to work alongside them or carry out their ideals. And one, one question I want to bring up and it's something we didn't talk about um, from MP was uh, what yes, do you think of the Joker's you. death? It's always bugged me. Hmm. What do you mean? It just it. I don't. Know, it, it maybe it's <laughs> maybe it's. I can't figure it out physically, or you know, uh, like. I don't know. Like it makes complete sense that Batman won't take that step, even in his, you know, at the at arguably the the peak of his, you know, his comeback. He wants to kill him. He's gonna kill him, but he can't bring himself to do it, and the Joker knows it. And so, you know, in that moment, he twists his own neck far enough to kill himself to make it look like Batman did it so that the whole force of the police uh, will come down on him. And the public perception of him too. I think that's a key part of it. Mm. Um, It's trying to kill Batman as an idea really, which, which is what eventually forces him to have to go underground. Yeah. They're trying to damage the reputation they're in. And uh, I feel like it, it makes sense that he doesn't kill him. Like he's never gonna like that is the point of Batman. He will he will never cross that line. Even even this version of the Batman will never succumb to that because that was never Batman. So I feel like that has held held true. Well, we know that Batman used to gun fools down back in the day, but despite that fact, yes, I do think that. You know, it makes sense because Batman doesn't kill and neither does Bruce. So there's no reason why either aspect of his personality would allow that to happen. It's just not in his nature. Um, But at the same time, I didn't care for the death that much. It almost felt like a cop out like, yeah, we want to get the Joker dead, but we don't want Batman to kill him. But we want him to get really close. Yeah. For me, it's another one of those things where it's not it's not the Joker story, it's Batman's story. So it's just a means to an end to narratively tell things. Like the same mm. somewhat situation has happens in Killing Joke, but that is a Joker story. 
So that's why I think that one's more pontificated on. It's also left a little more open-ended. Um, this makes sense. I feel like this is, this story has been told, you know, um, this is Batman who laughs. You know, the Joker uh, finally gets Batman to, to kill him, and then, you know, he triggers that whole thing as well. This is the idea that um, the Joker dying is the thing that tips Batman over. Kind of permeates comics throughout. Does it tip him over? Tip him over to what? It tips him over in the sense that Batman can't really exist anymore in the public eye. Maybe not tipping over Bruce himself, but the the symbol of Batman gets tainted because of that, which then causes Superman to come out after him. John mm. mm. uh, Carlos says, is that possible to break your own neck like that? It's kind of ironic, though. I always um, get scared that I'll do that. Bro, yeah. have you never just woken up and been like, oh, I fucked my back up. That's it. That I, I somehow I, I slept the wrong way and my neck's like this now. Kale just... trying to do a backflip. Uh, listen, I'm uh, listen, that's me sleeping. I'm third I'm thirty-four. Like and then do you question his ability to kill himself that way? I I think wrong and I hurt my back. Um no, I popped my I uh was in the shower once when I was a kid and I popped my neck a little too far once. No, I listen, I believe it'll happen. Slip the disc. Ooh. Yeah. I think if there's anyone who could just command their body to do something that it shouldn't do, it's Joker. Yeah. Uh, Med Binbacher said, although a great milestone, the Dark Knight Returns did not age as well as year one. Hmm. Ooh. I think I agree with that. I think I agree with that. I feel like year one is a little more timeless. Yes. Uh, whereas while DKR is great and a phenomenal read, it is eternally trapped in 1986. For better or for worse. Better if you ask me, but... Sure. I don't feel that... Like, I I agree with that, but I don't know that I think that that is... That almost feels like saying water's wet. And I don't mean that in like a negative to you, uh, Ahmed. It's just that, like, yeah, of course. But I don't think that that has anything to do with how good it is, right? Like, Watchmen is rooted in the time that it's from, but it also can apply to now. Just like I think this can. You know, mm-hmm. you can look at this and go, man, the world is fucked. Like, we need a father figure to straighten this all out, which is the same thought that motivated Frank to tell this story. You know, I, I think in that aspect, it is timeless. The ideas are timeless. Yeah, I think what it comes down to is just more of a subjective on art, really. I think Mazzucchelli's is, I, I, I agree with Cal, a little more timeless. It's a little cleaner. Um, probably a little more marketable, if that makes sense. Yeah, and it's not so stuck in an era. Sure. And that goes with the art. John Carlos says, I don't think it's the definitive Batman story, but I do think it's the best ending for Batman. Well, he's in strikes again, so it's not an ending. <laughs> and and it and it even shows that there isn't an end, right? Like again, the technically the story continues even if the comic ends. Right. Yeah, there's no I don't think there's anything definitive about the ending. Like it's not 
it's not definitively telling you, okay, this is it. There's this will never happen again. Um, and so in a sense, I don't really see it as a, an ending. I guess it's like a last Batman story. Maybe could be. Um, I do think it's the most definitive Batman story. What do you mean by definitive there? Yeah. By definitive, I mean it's the one that is the most influential. It's the most commonly – the beliefs that that most people have about Batman come from the DNA of this, more so than anything mm-hmm. else, at least right now. for Since this to now, that is the case. Prior to that, it's something else, but the book didn't exist. So the power of what Frank Miller is saying here was so uh, impactful that everyone has spun out of it. I agree with that. I think if you look at the dynamics that Batman has with the characters in this book, the the dynamic was forever altered by this book. And everything that came after this book reflects the dynamics from this book. Yeah. Uh, what else we got? Uh, Amin did have a question. I don't know the exact way he worded it, but the gist of it was, uh, can we answer the age-old debate of what direction Batman is facing in the lightning picture? <laughs> hey, what? I always took it to be his back is toward us, oh, but you could no, also I'm, see his face. I'm opposite. Yeah. I'm forward. He's straight dabbing in the... I, I'm with you, Sean. I always thought the back, like, I can almost see the cape flowing in front of him. Right. Um, and he is, I always picture him as a righty. That's why. So he would lead with his right. That makes sense. Oh, in that case, I never knew Batman was a lefty for me. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, how do you see a le- Oh, I think, it, well, it's in, the, it's in the legs, though. It's in the legs that he is. That he's facing, I guess. Just like back on women. His back is towards us. I can, That's I what mean, I, it looks like. I can see how you can maybe think his, he's facing us. Like if it, if like his crotch is facing us, his legs are up, you know? That's, yeah, that's how I see it, yeah. Kale went oh, crotch first. That's how he views Batman. Listen. I mean, it would be symbol first too, so. Huh, I've never actually thought of that. And then no one's ever asked me that question. That's interesting. Bit of a Rorschach what? test. Uh, yeah. Hound says... Uh, it's in the gallery edition, and he is facing the reader. No way. Hound, can you put that in the Discord? <clears throat> Get that out. I don't here. want to look at that. This was <laughs> actually a debate that sprung up on the internet a few months ago, and, and it was solved by that. By really? That yeah. Oh, is that right? No way. But I answered the question from the perspective of the question. What did I? What do I think? It looks like he's not facing us to me, but the answer is def- is. There is a definite answer. Uh, Uncaged said, this book gutted me. Watching media this week, I filtered it through the story. I think, and that's what I meant when I said that, like, it is, the ideas in this book are probably timeless. Because they, I don't think they're limited to that time frame. I think a chaotic world out your outside your window is something that is relevant to you, relative to who you are and when you exist and where you are. I've definitely felt this way. You know, I'm sure a lot of people felt this way during 9-11. The world is crazy right now. I'm sure a lot of people feel like this. 
Um, and I think I think that's so. That's what is sort of driving me more toward reading the sequels. I haven't read Master Race, but you know, feeling this again and being old and jaded, it really makes me want to hit Strikes Back. And then I want to see what Miller was thinking in, you know, 2016 or whatever that was like. I've never read it. I would like to, well, uh, the uh, strikes again or whatever. I've never read it. Oh, you'll hate it. I'm sure. I've only ever heard (laughs) bad things about it. You'll hate it. I love it. Uh, Amin said, should we then judge Watchmen based on the sequels? I maybe feel Kale has a point because Miller wrote the sequels. That's in reference to our debate about how we should look at this book through the lens of the sequels and whatnot. I'm biased because the sequel is what I read first. Right. So I'm perfectly willing to, you know, concede that point. To me, the the argument still stands. Batman is who lived. That's, you know, that's still my opinion there. But um, I'm perfectly willing to say I'm biased because I read the sequel first. I, I, and I really find it so interesting that that debate erupted even in the chat because to me, oh, that's wild. <laughs> I, well, because to me, there is no, I don't, I'm surprised that anyone thinks there's a debate. I don't really think, I don't really think you're meant to ask who, who lived because I think the book is clearly telling you that there is no dichotomy. They are the same person. And so the, the, the person that is Bruce Wayne slash Batman live no one died only in the eyes of the public did anyone die he ascended mm-hmm. and became a myth but no one died at least not to me yeah mm-hmm. okay mm. yeah it's the metaphor right, right. Right, right exactly uh what else we got i just had one uh, we had one from Discord. Let me find it from someone new, actually. Ah, uh, yes. Yeah, good, good, good. Um, Let's see. Can I say Miller's way he portrays the Wayne's gun down is really powerful and in your face and made the crime alley death mean so much in those panels? Listen, yeah. you can say whatever you want. <laughs> <laughs> No, I don't disagree. Yeah, I, I like in particular how much time you get in between panels. Like things happen in slow motion and, and there's so many of them in, in succession and they flip between the um, uh, the the gun, the pearls, the, the pointing, like all of the, it almost feels like it's trying to capture the moment in slow motion through Bruce's eyes. Um, so I, I always felt like it was a very powerful way to reiterate what happened and the fact that it happens while he's rewatching the movie. I mean, he's having like that, like a, like a flashback, that trauma is hitting him again. Mm. So the, the discord comment, Cal, um, I have it here. And I think uh, he actually yeah, I found both of them. He might be in the chat too, because the question was asked in the chat as well. Um, I think it might've been Brian Jenkins, uh, what classic literature could this book parallel to as far as a story or individual characters? It's a wild question. I hate to break it to you, um, 
I am not well read when it comes to <laughs> when it comes to classic literature. I know about it uh, tangentially, but my actual knowledge of it is not good. So I don't know if I'm equipped to answer this one. The Scarlet Letter. Congrats! You did a book report no. in twelfth grade. <laughs> oh, incorrect! A raisin in the sun. I don't have an answer. Unfortunately, I appreciate the question, but I, I'm not like. Yeah, I feel like this is going to be a cop out answer because every story is based on this, but it's the only thing I can think of. I feel like it's the classic hero's journey. So I feel like you're looking at something like the Iliad, you know, where, sure. where, uh, Odysseus, 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 yep, yeah, goes on the the long journey and comes back somewhat different. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Uh, Harvoke over on the Discord, who was also here with us live, said, you got that one too. Okay. Uh, do you feel Dark Knight Returns did more good or harm and vice versa to the perception of Batman and his mythos? Uh, I think it rehabbed the character. Hmm. I think it rehabbed the character. I think it made Batman cool again. Um, I mean, when you look at the comics that were being published, um, there was good stuff happening around this time, certainly. But you look before that into this, you know, like sometime in the 70s. I mean, you're still talking comics code and they were hamstrung with that. You're talking Batman 66, which, you know, made Batman a more popular character than he had ever been. But it also created a definitive Batman that is of its time. And that time had certainly passed in the 80s. But the public perception of the character was still that. So I think Batman never gets to the heights that he got to if we don't get this book. And therefore, I think it did all good. Just from looking at the chat, I mean, like Dan, Atomic Count, and Nomis, you know, talked about reading comics at the time when this was coming out and how wild this was to see in real time. So that alone, I think, is just evidence that, like, this revitalized the character. Yeah. Atomic Count said something I completely agree with. Reading this will remind you why comics are the single best medium for telling superhero mythical tales. Not movies, not TV, comics. So stop trying. <laughs> uh, one from uh, Definitely Not Amin Perez. Are there any modern books or runs that you guys think capture the right ideas and themes from this book? It's like learning the lessons or translating similar lessons. So it's funny. I, I was actually thinking about this when we were talking about uh, as Batman being the anti-establishment um proxy in this book right i think that you said that sean um whereas i think in modern comics he's almost the establishment now and people fight against him you know i think of uh gotham war in a way i mean i know we don't, we don't care much for gotham war but batman was the one saying no this is the way it is where other people were like no i think we have a way of rehabbing things and making things better than they actually are and his 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 sons in a way and daughters were fighting against that established thought um i think you, there's a lot of analogy of batman as a police state character as well in a lot of books nowadays um which is almost antithetical to what this book is um so i like how it's it's uh, uh the batman as a uh, post miller batman as a character has lived long enough to see himself become that villain of miller's batman in a way what comics are you seeing where you're seeing that version of Batman? because i don't know if i agree 
we've got Kingdom Come. Sure. And then uh uh there's the uh the OMAC the version of OMAC that Batman yeah. creates around Infinite Crisis. And then there's also uh, uh Tower Babel as well in, in a way where he's this controlling presence above everyone. He's always he's almost positioned himself above everyone so he becomes the establishment in a way. I don't see but I don't know if I think that's different. I think that this version of Batman is the same as any other in that his will is all that there is. And he would do anything to accomplish the goals that he has. And I, and I don't disagree with you, but because I think this book is such a Batman's POV book that we've gotten this version of Batman from other people's POV and how that can be perceived. Robotters adds, I think Fear State took the police state to the extreme and how main continuity Batman knows it's the wrong way to instill order. That's the one I was thinking of, yeah. I, I liked Fear State. That's uh, Tinian and uh, uh, Jimenez as well. Jimenez, it's, yeah. it's underrated. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, let's see. Any other good comments? Oh, uh, quick correction. Dan says that I was thinking of uh, uh, the Odyssey, not the Iliad. So mm. I knew if I was going to get corrected by somebody, it'd be one of the old heads. You implying Othello. he was there to see it written? <laughs> <laughs> no, it wasn't Hound. It was Dan. Yeah, we covered the animated movies a little earlier, John Carlos. Um, yeah, I'm just, you guys, I'm just glad you guys we did came this. through so many comments. What's that? I'm just glad we did this. This is a fun one. Uh, and I think it's wild that you guys never touched this before. Right? Just from circumstance. I don't know why but yeah it's just one of those that that just you know no one ever nominated it for whatever reason as strange as that sounds uh i've been trying to work through i worked through all my classics all my batman classics we've done so this was next up i guess yeah so batman 100 <laughs> while since i read i read that little, one little paul pope yeah that's that I haven't read that one. Oh, yeah. uh, Paul Pope is. Uh, thought he got canceled, but whatever. Yeah. Oh, did he? So, are, do you have a list? Are we ready for the giveaway? I, I can I can generate it right now. So here's the thing, because there's a lot of you in this chat. Do I just want to make sure? I just want to make sure. Does anybody not want to cop? You want to abstain. That way we can make sure we get this into the hands of someone that, that wants it. And I think um, Harvoke yep. forfeited his. So okay. let's make sure we... That would be Roboters? Roboters, okay. yeah. I was going off YouTube names. So. While, while, while Tyler takes care of that and while the chat settles itself, I want to make an announcement about the future of the book club. Because things are going to change. But... I think they're going to change in a good way. So we have always run the book club in this way. We nominate a book. Then we put it to you guys and you vote on patreon.com slash the comics pals. Those of you 
who are, who are of a voting tier, right? And that's cool. But we thought, why not put more power in your hands? And why not open things up? You know, why not let it be the Wild West and see how that plays out? So what we want to do is we want to slightly tweak this to make it so that instead of us nominating the books, you nominate the books. And on top of that, we're opening it up so that anyone can nominate a book as long as they're subscribed on Patreon. But here's the kicker. You could be subscribed to our Patreon for completely free. So all you have to do is sign up on the website. And the next time that we are looking to have a book club poll, what's going to happen is everybody's going to say what book they want us to read. Let's say it's Superman month, right? And you can nominate whatever Superman book you want us to check out. The four books that are the most nominated will be put on a poll. And then our appropriately tiered patrons get to vote. And the winner of that poll will be the book that we do for the book club. And I use Superman as an example. That's the first one we're going with. So this month, the month of February, we're going to be doing a book, a Superman book club, but you choose the book. And it could be anything. Now don't screw us. Yeah. Superman grounded by J. J. Michael Straczynski coming in. Oh, geez. February 20th. Dark Knight Strikes Again. Perennial <laughs> Superman book. <laughs> Atomic Hound said it right. Playoffs. Exactly. Everybody gets to nominate. We play off the final four in a poll. Our appropriately tiered patrons get to vote. And then we bring the book club to you all. Democracy. Isn't it a beautiful thing? The Greeks invented it too. Oh. You mean Odysseus? Yeah. Oedipus? And those. Yeah. Antigone? All right. I'm ready to I'm ready to pull this name, Sean. If you're if did you're ready you, for me. Did you pull Atomic yeah. Hound and I mean yep. I pulled I pulled the necessary people who abstained. All right, nice awesome. Well. Let's do it. All right, here we go. I'm gonna click this button. Drum roll, please. MP. let's go okay mp that's awesome so mp you won congratulations all you have to do i'm not sure if you're a member of our discord uh so if you're not you just have to join our discord which there's a link to that in the description of this video or anything else we do and once you're on you can just message me at sean soapbox on discord and uh we will take care of you buddy thank you thank you to everybody that participated the, the giveaways will be a thing going forward. So if you want to take part in giveaways, we'll have the monthly for the book club. So this won't be the last time we do this. And I thank you, especially to the people that abstained because, you know, we want to get, we want to get books into, you know, the hands of new readers, those that don't own a copy. So um, thank you for that. And thank you for coming. This has been a blast. Yeah, so much fun. Ruled. I'm excited for Superman, honestly. I, there's a lot of Superman that I've not read. So, so and I'll, I'll out maybe. myself here. I've not read All-Star Superman. I know we, we talked about it when we were talking about potentially making February Superman month, but uh, I'm going to out myself for the listeners as well. So what's the vote? Well, well there's going to be some caveat, because one thing we're not going to do is read the whole death and return of Superman. <laughs> <laughs> Atomic Hound. We cannot. That is, Listen, we cannot. We can read some of it. 
We might. We could read the death of. Yeah, well, listen, we can read read the return of. One or the other. <laughs> no, it's got to be both. How long is it all? I don't even know. It's pretty fucking long. Oh, yeah, yeah. We'll figure Mar- it out. Onslaught Saga was rough. Next month, Superman will be the topic. We don't know what we'll be reading yet. That is up to you on patreon.com slash the comics pal subscribe for free you don't have to be a paying member to engage in this we hope you have a blast with that there's so much on our patreon page that you will love if you decide you want to support us in that way but that is not an obligation youtube.com slash the comics pals to watch our show every single saturday at 10 15 a.m eastern and then thursday is the next time we will be with you live at 6 p.m. Eastern for Pals Pulls, and uh, we will see you then. Until then, take care, guys. See you next month at the poll.